Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 113. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 24 through 27 and follow with a consideration of sight gags. Chapter 24 begins in a manner that anyone can easily understand. A sight gag. God shows Yirmiyahu two baskets of figs, one contained first ripened figs and the other inedible figs of the worst quality. Any guesses on where this is going? Quote, As with these good figs, so will I single out for the good the Judean exiles whom I have driven out from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will look upon them favorably and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not uproot them. And as for the bad figs... One interesting item to note here is that when Yirmiyahu lists all the bad figs, he also includes the Jews living in Egypt, which is a nod to an increasingly important Jewish diaspora community at this time. Chapter 25 involves another kind of sight gag. This time it focuses on a prop, a cup of wrath. But first, the setup. Yirmiyahu tells the people that he's been prophesizing and warning and admonishing them for like 13 years, and no one's bothered to listen. So guess what's going to happen? Quote, I am going to send for all the peoples of the north, declares the Lord, and for my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all those nations round about. I will exterminate them and make them a desolation, an object of hissing, ruins for all time. But, after 70 years, the Babylonians will be punished too. So, that's good, I suppose. But in the meantime, punishment and suffering will be the order of the day, and the means of delivering it will be the cup of wrath. Quote, Take from my hand this cup of wine, of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink of it. Let them drink and wretch and act crazy because of the sword that I am sending among them. So all the kings of Judah will drink, as well as Pharaoh king of Egypt, the kings of the land of Uz, the heads of the Philistine city-states, the kings of Tyre and Sidon and the coastlands, and quote, all those who have their hair clipped, and the kings of Arabia, the desert peoples, the king of Zimri and Elam, and the Medes, and the kings of the north. The north remembers. And King Sheshach too will drink, and they'll all get drunk and vomit and fall and never rise again. And if they refuse, God tells Yirmiyahu to tell them, too bad! Quote, Tumult has reached the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a case against the nations. He contends with all flesh. He delivers the wicked to the sword. Oh, damn! Chapter 26 begins with Yirmiyahu going again to the courtyard of the temple to speak to the people. God has provided the script, and he emphasizes, quote, Do not omit anything. And he proceeds to let loose on the spectators, prophesizing destruction for the temple and the kingdom, which did not amuse the priests and the temple prophets who rebuked him. Quote, you shall die. How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord that this house shall become like Shiloh and this city be made desolate without inhabitants. Hey you, let's fight. Them's fighting words. <laughs> well, sensing a fight, the people gather and are soon joined by palace officials who confer with the priests and declare, quote, this man deserves the death penalty for he has prophesied against the city as you yourselves have heard. So what's happened here is that, in effect, Yirmiyahu is put on trial. He is the first and only prophet to be charged with a capital offense. But what did he do 
that would merit the death penalty. The palace officials say it. False prophecy. Yirmiyahu has declared that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, and that is clearly fake prophecy, because why would God send someone in his name to announce that he would allow his house to be destroyed? Are you crazy? So you understand now why the priests were so hot to have Yirmiyahu condemned. But Yirmiyahu does not back down. Instead, he doubles down, calling on all the folks to repent before it's too late. And then he challenges the officials to carry out their threat and kill him. Which they don't. First they say, well, he is speaking God's word, so... And then the elders step forward and recall how the prophet Micha, a contemporary of Yeshayahu from the 8th century BCE, made similar dire pronouncements in the days of King Chizkiyahu, and Chizkiyahu did not have him killed. But the same happened to another prophet, Uriah, son of Shmayah, who also prophesied similarly. Uriah, though, fled to Egypt before the king's men could get their hands on him, but the king's agents went down to Egypt and brought him back, and King Jehoiakim ran him through with his very own sword. So. It looks like it can go either way for Yirmiyahu, and it's clear that the point could have been argued for quite some time more, but before it gets too out of control, Achikam ben Shafan spirits Yirmiyahu away to safety. Chapter 27 begins with yet another prop, a yoke. Not the kind you find in an egg, but the kind you place across the necks of a team of oxen so they can pull a plow or a cart. The yoke is a powerful symbol. It represents restraint, boundaries, discipline, subservience, but it also represents singularity of purpose. A team of oxen could not be a team without the yoke. They must work together, timing their steps as they pull. The yoke is also used as a symbol to represent one's acceptance of Jewish responsibility. Ol mitzvot, the yoke of commandment. It's taken upon oneself at the appropriate age. And the symbol also works in the opposite. If you're a wild and unruly person, someone who answers to no one, Someone who has no code or loyalty. There's a Hebrew phrase for this. En lo Elohim, he has no God. The Tanakh refers to you as a ben bliyaal, which literally means a yokeless person, a yokeless son. But Safaria renders it as a scoundrel. God tells Yirmiyahu to make a yoke and put it on his neck and send a message to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, telling them not to throw off the yoke, that is, to submit to Babylon, because God intends for the Babylonians to win. Resistance is futile. He sends the same message to Tzidkiyahu and to the people and to the priests. He reiterates, don't listen to fake prophets or their fake prophecies. The Babylonians will come and destroy everyone in their path. Not only will those vessels from the temple that were taken by the Babylonians in the first revolt of 597 BCE never return, but the remaining surviving pieces will be taken as well and remain in exile in Babylonia for decades until God restores the Jews to their homeland sometime in the future. Oh, damn! Here endeth the lesson. This episode's portion, like many of the previous episode's portions, is very colorful. You know, and especially this one with Yirmiyahu doing all these great sight gags. All right, you ready? I have some clips. We're going we're gonna to listen to them. Okay, here we go. Clip number one. Oh, oh yeah. Of course, that doesn't really work in a podcast because it's a sight gag. It's a, it's a visual gag. And this medium isn't really designed for that. 
And the thing is, the humor uh, in the sight gag is based on the possibility of interpreting what you see differently. So, for example, I mean, the classic example that they talk about in film school is, is uh, Hitchcock's 39 Steps. And um, there are this complicated story I'm not going to get into. You can look it up on IMDb or you can, you know, watch it on Netflix or whatever. But there are these protagonists, uh, Hannah and Pamela, and they're handcuffed to each other. And Hannah is supposed to be Pamela's prisoner, but then Hannah escapes. And, and anyway, they clearly hate each other. But the innkeepers they interact with when they are looking for a respite and a hideout misinterprets their physical closeness. He sees it as physical intimacy, like their husband and wife. So we laugh because we know the deal. And we also know that someone who doesn't know what we know could understand the situation differently. So like they make all these kinds of, like you know, the innkeeper makes these faces and, ooh, you know, the husband and wife want to be together, blah, blah, blah. You know, so that's a source of, of, of amusement and levity. Sight gags also work because of the pairing of an incongruity. Think like Laurel and Hardy, you know, Stan Laurel was actually average height and weight, but next to Oliver Hardy, he appeared small and slight. Hard, Hardy was about, you know, a meter 85, it's like 6'1", and he weighed about 280. The same dynamic worked with Abbott and Costello, another kind of sight gaggy slapstick comedy duo. Bud Abbott was the taller, thinner, devious straight man, while Lou Costello was the shorter, rotund, dim-witted comic. Sometimes the sight gag is a metaphor. Where the audience comes to see an object metaphorically equated with something unexpected. Think of Charlie Chaplin in 1925's The Gold Rush eating his boot. The laces become spaghetti. The nails in the sole are the bones. The sole itself becomes a fillet. Or this gem from Naked Gun 2 and a half when Frank Drebin, our intrepid protagonist detective, is drowning his sorrows in a bar. On second thought, how about a black Russian? Very well, sir. I guess I'm just... When Frank asks for the strongest thing you got, a greased bodybuilder appears flexing his muscle. And when Frank asks for the black Russian, the waiter says yes, and then he looks at the camera and shakes his head. Or here's another example, again from the canon of Zucker, Zucker, and Abrams from an earlier work, 1980s Airplane, when these trench coat wearing, kind of hard nosed, you know, straight out of central casting reporters come to cover the impending plane crash. Okay, boys, let's get some pictures. What you can't see is that these reporters are literally taking all the framed photos off the walls. Another kind of sight gag relies on the switch image, where we as the audience assume one thing is happening only to discover that something else entirely is taking place. Here, contrary to the first example, there are not multiple interpretations at play. It's just that our take is the wrong one. We soon discover what really is happening and we laugh. So for example, practically every bit that Mr. Bean does involves some kind of sight gag as he's largely mute, but much of what he does seems obvious at first. But after a moment, we realize we've made a mistake and assumed 
which, as you know, makes an ass out of you and me. And, and a lot of these gags involve something somewhat risque. This kind of sight gag doesn't really involve an object, but an event. We see a sequence of events in a particular order rather than simultaneously. We see Mr. Bean with his back to us frantically tugging at what seems to be his groin, only to discover that in actuality he's struggling to fit a key into a lock, which is attached to his belt on a chain that's just a little bit too short. Again, sequence is critical. We need to see the fiddling first, and then the key, and then the lock second. Otherwise, we just miss the joke altogether. There are probably like a half dozen other types of sight gags, and I won't ruin them by dissecting them every which way. But all this is to say that prophets never intentionally employ sight gags, because A, they're not comedians, and their timing is terrible, and B, they don't want anyone to interpret their image differently. They don't want any, like, double meaning or anything like that. They are, they're there to deliver a very specific and concrete message. When your Miyahu grabs a piece of pottery and smashes it or puts a yoke on himself or, you know, a cup of wrath, it, it, it might seem silly and odd, but it doesn't leave much room for interpretation. People don't like it when you smash things. But they get the point. Oh, you smashed this pottery and you're talking about the temple and the kingdom being smashed? Oh, yeah, I got that. Judah is an agrarian society and farmers use yokes all the time. So it's clear the yoke keeps the animals in line, keeping their heads down, following instructions from the boss, pulling the plow, keep on keeping on. When you put the yoke on yourself, you're making a statement about keeping your own head down, following instructions from Babylon. Keep on keeping on. Got it. But the thing is, the people didn't get it. They never got it. They didn't listen. For 13 years, Yirmiyahu was at it, railing against the short-sightedness and the corruption and the bad political decisions. But maybe if he'd used a different prop or set up a different gag, it might have registered. Maybe if instead of a yoke, if he'd scattered banana peels all over the temple courtyard, he might have gotten a different reaction. Maybe people would have been, been laughing. But at least then, he would have, you know, they would have focused up, and they might have realized that they should be careful, because if they charge ahead without looking, they might slip and tragically fall. <laughs> If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 114, when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 28 through 31.